0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's Notion.com squared.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For this episode, we're hearing from the researcher, scholar and writer Kat Bohanan, whose recent book, Eve, looks at the evolution of the human species, with a focus on women. The book traces that journey from the Jurassic era across millennia. Joining Kat to discuss it is Lucy Cook, zoologist, presenter and author, who listeners may remember from an earlier episode on the podcast when Lucy discussed her own book, Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal. Let's join Lucy now with more.
2: I'm delighted to be interviewing Kat Bohannon for Intelligence Squared today. Kat is a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition and her new book is Eve how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution and I absolutely love this book I've got a million questions I want to ask but I'm going to kick off with a biggie Kat please tell me
1: how midwives set our ancestors on the evolutionary path to success So there's this thing that we often mistake about the human body. We think that we're good at making babies. Right. And it would seem straightforward. We have eight billion people on the planet. That seems like a good, strong insect like number. Right. Like, okay, here we go. Um, And so we say, okay, we must be good at this. It's a little painful, a little whatever. You know, women suck it up. It's all good. Unfortunately, no, 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 no. We're terrible at popping them out, actually. That our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to dangerous and painful and crippling and sometimes deadly complications than they are for most other primates. Well, except for the squirrel monkey and we feel real bad for her. But also worse than for most other mammals, actually. There are always terrible cases, but actually, yeah, we are among the worst. And so if that's the case, well, that, as you know, Lucy, is a really hard problem in evolutionary biology. You don't get much of a harder problem than that. If you suck at making babies, you're very unlikely destined for global domination. That's not like a path that you're likely to set on. You're more likely going to be sequestered in a kind of fun, weird little ecological pocket, if you manage to survive at all. And then eventually climate changes, probably or something happens or encroachment and kaput. Right? That's probably... Unless something radical changes in your body to get rid of this massive problem, okay? So when I was thinking back to, okay, what is it that helped us get us where we are and what are some of the stories that we haven't told yet? Well, like, well, God, any given biologist looks at our reproductive system and would say, Mmm, okay, you needed workarounds. You needed help with that, right? And well, the most obvious help with that is probably midwifery. There are other hate there are other aids, there are other helps. But midwifery most straightforwardly, and we are among the only species that regularly do this. We are among the only species that regularly help one another give birth. And it's not because we're just so hypersocial that we want to hang out in vulnerable moments when our vag is just out in the world, right? It's actually it's actually that we need help with this. This is not easy. This is, in fact, very hard, and this is in fact very dangerous. And so I'm not the first to say it, but Lucy, the Australopithecine, 3.2 million years ago, furry little chick, probably had a midwife. Um, And that's probably because she had a similar problem that we have, the obstetric dilemma. We're trying to fit a watermelon-sized thing out of a lemon-sized hole, and if you've met fruit, it's a problem, right? Um, And so by analyzing fossilized pelvises and, and what have you, it seems that, yeah, probably at least starting around then, we started helping each other out how we got there is unclear because it's not a straightforward primate behavior, but yeah. And without that, without trying to get our hands on the levers of reproduction, it's very unlikely we would have gotten here.
2: Um, I, you know, this, it's such a fascinating take and, and, and midwives have, haven't, uh, you know, they deserve the center stage um, that you give them for sure. And what I really enjoyed was, um, how you you although we are the only great apes that we know of to or the only species to practice midwifery. Um, what's interesting about it is it it it's you did find a little bit of evidence in one of our relatives, and that also suggests the need for midwifery suggests that we may have a social system that's in line with this particular. Great ape hey, relative, which doesn't always get used as the standard paradigm for
1: hominin ancestry. So tell me a little bit about that, because I love this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our sexy cousin, the uh, less discussed and slightly smaller chimpanzee, as it were. Um, yeah. So living across that river in that uh, bountiful place of much food and much sex. So the bonobos great. And what's weird and interesting about the bonobo isn't simply that they're matriarchal, which, as you know, isn't that unusual among primates. There are loads of those. Right. Um, but they're more like us and equally genetically related to us as the chimpanzee and matriarchal and have a lot of sex. OK, let's set the sex aside for now. We can always come back to it. But also that there's finally been some uh, witness of bonobo birth. Now, in chimpanzee, as you know, uh, Lucy, it's hard to actually see what's going down in birth outside of a lab setting because they tend to do it up in trees and they tend to do it up at night and they tend to go away from the main group that you're observing to do it. Um, You know, the so-called maternal leave. Chimpanzees secretly give birth and suppress their vocalizations when they're doing so. But the bonobo also tends to kind of go a little bit away, but not the same. So what they saw is they saw this uh, bonobo go up into a tree. She was pregnant. She was going to give birth. This was well-known. What was unusual is that they saw a number of other females join her in said tree, one of whom was, in fact, in the nest with her. Now, they didn't have a full view. They weren't able to see exactly if the other, like, cupped her hands to pull the kid out. What they did see, however, is that the mother who was in labor was not distressed by their presence. And that was really interesting, that she was down with that. She was like, yeah, you're here. It's cool. Okay, fine. Also, interestingly, after the birth had happened, uh, she and this uh, female who had joined her and another female all shared the placenta. And by that, I mean eating it. Not something I would recommend for human beings. Kind of gross. Not my thing. However, it is one model for maybe how that could have gone down in our ancestors, right? Like maybe you hang out and help a female give birth because you get a bit of wet meat. I mean, that's incredibly gross, but whatever. So is a lot of the animal world. It's one reward system, in other words, among many others. And I thought that was really cool. We don't know if this is happening a lot in the wild. You know, there's just been so few observations. It's hard to really model how midwifery gets going. We've seen some other primates also, but it's so rare. It's so, so, so rare. So we're not, it's a it's a bit of a mystery. All we know is that we do it now, nearly all of us.
2: And, and what that suggests, doesn't it, is that, you know, as as you say so brilliantly in your book, that, you know, it's... um. It, it's a vulnerable thing giving birth. You know, you're not just going to let any old female come along and get her head down there. Particularly if we have a, you know, there is there is infanticide, for example, that that takes place. So, so the fact that there is, it, it sort of it suggests that there was a certain social system, doesn't there?
1: It strongly, to me, suggested more of a matriarchy than uh than a male dominated oh, uh, environment for sure. I mean, um. You have those tight female bonds in the matriarchies in any primate social primate group, yeah? And you really need that sense of trust, you really need that incredibly tight female bond to trust another with your nether bits and your newborn, let's be honest. But it's not just that. It's also that um, you know, the way social rank is working, the way female-female competition is working in the chimpanzee, the central reason or at least this is the theory. For why that maternal leave happens that you go away from the group to come and then hesitantly come back to introduce your newborn to your group is precisely because they are very likely to kill this thing and not just kill it, but eat it in front of you while you cry. Right. Um, And this is something that is well observed in alpha females. If a non-alpha female comes back to the group with a newborn and she's not friends with the alpha, the alpha may well steal that baby and, you know, murder it and eat it. Which, again, to us doesn't sound super fun, but again, the animal world doesn't care what we think about it. So if that's the environment of that kind of patriarchy and weaker female bonds, that doesn't sound like a really good candidate for midwifery as a regular practice, you know? Uh, like, I think you need that safety. You need that strong norm of females helping each other.
2: Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I I found your argument very convincing and delightfully so, I have to say. Um, but uh, let's let's just rewind a bit about um, about how we suck at making babies. So, do we should we just like tease that out a bit? Why are we
1: so bad? So, I think there are two reasons. One of which gets discussed a lot in paleoanthropology, and one of which doesn't get discussed nearly enough. Uh, probably because it isn't present in the fossil record, but any good OB will tell you it is true. Okay. So the one that gets discussed a lot is the obstetric dilemma that and the general theory for it, although this is controversial, is that when we shifted to the uh, upright mode of locomotion, when we became fully bipedal, not just occasionally, the pelvis had to change to support that new center of gravity and doing so effectively closed uh, that that bony opening in the bottom of the pelvis, literally where the baby comes out, got smaller. Right. This, of course, is part of why uh, ligaments loosen during human pregnancy. And the pelvis gets all kind of wackadoodle, um, in part to kind of open it as much as you can. So, okay, fine. But the fundamental problem then is, okay, you've got a giant baby, basically, which isn't just the head. We actually have a usefully squishy head. That's why they come out cone shape if they come out of the vag. You know, those fontanelles don't close for a while. So you can kind of squeeze a lot of it out. Actually, the big problem is the shoulders. The clavicles don't bend, right? And you need big shoulders to hold up our stupidly giant heads. And so, actually, so shoulders are the things that tend to get stuck just as much as heads in the birth canal. Sorry for anyone who's about to give birth. I know this is painful to think about. Moving on. Right? So, okay. So, that's the obstetric dilemma. And the idea is that, oh, it's actually really hard to get such a giant thing out of this small hole. You know, a, a chimpanzee birth, top to bottom, is, like, roughly, on average, 30 minutes. And by that, I mean the labor. I mean, actually, like, she starts laboring and then. Right? Right? Um, and Jane Goodall has talked quite a bit about that historically, right? And the human uh, mother, especially if it's her first time, we're talking 12 to 16 hours. And a lot of that isn't just the squeezing, that horrific labor pain thing that's happening. It's actually dilating the cervix to a ridiculously large number to get that giant thing out. Okay, moving on. So this is the central problem. If you have prolonged labor, that is difficult. There's a lot more time for things to go wrong. There's a lot more trouble with things getting literally caught in the out passage. And, of course, tearing along the way, none of which we want to think about. Fine. The other central problem that isn't talked about a lot in um, the paleo world is our placenta. Now, obviously, the placenta as an organ does not survive in the fossil record. So there's one good reason. OK, it's it's a wet tissue that quite literally dissolves or and or gets eaten, apparently, possibly by the, you know, the mother. Who knows? So the thing about our placenta is that it's deeply invasive. Not all placentas in the mammalian world are a lot of them are more like a kind of shallow disc. Oh, for those of you who are listening who don't know a pl- what a placenta is, it's kind of your docking station. You've heard of the umbilical cord. Well, that's what it attaches to in your uterine wall, okay? That's where you're docking on, and that's where the amniotic sac attaches, and that's what the baby is effectively connected to through that tube at the tummy. Okay? Fine. So the placenta is actually made of two plates, the maternal plate, and which is the basal plate made of the actual uterine tissue, and the top plate, which is made of embryonic tissue, it's one of the only organs in the animal world made of two, well, beings is a strong word, but, but two distinct uh, proto-organisms, if you like. One proto, one actual, okay? And the thing about our placenta is that it penetrates all the way down into the mother's bloodstream. So those blood vessels are just really woven and entwined and coiled in there, just way the hell deep, Okay. And so that does all kinds of things to the female body, not just when it's pregnant, but even before, because it influences the mother's immune system. It deeply regulates her metabolism. And, of course, all kinds of things can go wrong. So in the birth moment, of course, one of the things that can go wrong is when you're trying to detach this massively embedded thing. And it is massive. I mean, you can go on the Internet, people, and look at it. It's very Guillermo del Toro. It is Horror show this organ, but when it detaches, that means a lot of blood vessels are literally tearing. Okay, and not just the uh, placental blood vessels, but also maternal blood vessels can right, and so that is um, obviously an opportunity for hemorrhage. So that's not great. But also, since it takes so long, it might detach sooner than it should. It might have trouble coming out after the baby's already out. So that's that's a thing. But also in the long pre-birth period, that that whole prenatal period. All kinds of things can go wrong with the placenta that's that invasive at any point in the mother's body. There's no actual moment of a human pregnancy when that maternal body is fully um, safe. Now, our medical care is awesome. Go to your prenatal appointments. You're probably not going to die. Don't stress, right? But nevertheless, when you start to understand it that way, when you understand that whole trajectory of a pregnancy is actually a danger zone, well, that changes how you think about our species, and what it is to make more of ourselves
2: absolutely and, and it also provides uh, an explanation for why humans are part of an eclectic group of mammals that include four bats an elephant shrew and a spiny mouse that actually yeah. <laughs> menstruate you know i mean like you know which is which has been one of those much much pondered on puzzles and uh and our blood-sucking fetuses
1: provide a, an explanation, basically. Yes, absolutely. The reason we menstruate, as I say in the book, is not um, as, uh, what is it, Eve's curse. You know, if, you, if you're if you raised in a Christian environment, almost every uh, major world religion these days seems to have something bad to say about how we get periods. Um, and, you know, we just kind of deal with that while we deal with tampons, if that's your choice. Um, no, it's more... It's more that what's weird about us is we have spontaneous deciduation. So what that means is we, uh, we who have a uterus, don't wait to build up our uterine lining for a signal from a fertilized egg to come rolling down the tubes, right? We don't wait for that kind of, you know, clarion call, that kind of um, sound the alarm, say, okay, now get ready. We just start doing that at the start of our estrous cycle, right? We just start going, oh God, it could be, could be, might as well just start building up that very blood-filled, puffy lining, right? And that is the thing that we share with these other weird creatures you name, that we're all spontaneous... Uh, I'll say that again. We're all spontaneous uh, deciduation folk. And the thing about us is that we all share invasive placentas. That's the thing we have in common. That's why the elephant shrew, as weird as she is, is actually our closer sister in a uterine sense, yeah? That um, That when we have pregnancies we have a major invader coming in, right? So in that sense, our pregnancies are a bit more like trench warfare. We're actually literally digging in. We're prepping the field before someone comes in and invades someone, you know, in a general term here. Um, Because otherwise we might die. Might just die, actually, uh, if we don't. And in fact, uh, women who don't sufficiently build up that lining are more likely to have more uterine problems in their pregnancy. Um, And it may actually explain some of our high rate of ectopic pregnancies as well, because of course the uterine lining prepares for such a thing. But you have this highly invasive trophoblast coming in you, this highly invasive embryo that has long evolved to be invasive. So if it settles in in a a fallopian tube, it's just going to do what it's going to do.
2: Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know that you, um, yeah, the, the book took you 10 years to write. And during that time, you, you you had your own pregnancy adventure. Did that sort of inform how you were writing it? You know, because it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a straightforward path, you know?
1: Well, I would say that there's no straightforward path for any woman who, uh, or any person who gives birth. Okay. Um, We pretend it is, and we say this falls under the norm. This is under our happy little curve, and so let's call it normal. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. And just because it seems normal doesn't mean it's straightforward. Um, For me, no. In my 30s, it seemed I had a kind of weird hobby of being pregnant. I was frequently just doing that, this uterine-based hobby. It seemed I had many, many miscarriages. Some of them were uh, attempted pregnancies. Some of them were accidental. Ah, uh, you've heard about that ninety-nine percent effective thing with the birth control pill. I'm the other one percent. Happened to me not once but twice. Yeah, use condoms, chicks. Anyway, so um, so that all went down, and indeed, I also had an ectopic pregnancy. I've had an empty sack. I've had all the things, all the things for some reason, which actually is incredibly common. As I came to learn working on the book, um, and one of the things that that told me at the very least is that um, oh yeah oh, yeah, this isn't actually straightforward or easy or normal. Uh, maybe I should pay more attention in the scientific literature to stuff about the placenta, to stuff about the obstetric dilemma, not simply as a walking story, an upright bipedalism story, but actually as a, as a female story, you know? Um, so it guided me in that sense. But it did make me a little bit superstitious, not simply because, you know, when I went through IVF, it was like my body was just public territory, You know, like if someone held up a flashlight, I thought it was time to drop trow. I was like, oh, well, this again, fine. You know, just everybody was all up in there uh, in the medical environment. And so you get used to it. But also because, um, you know, like when I was working, I didn't work on the chapters in order, right? So when I was working on the uterine chapter, which wasn't in the beginning, that's when I had an ectopic pregnancy. When I was working on the milk chapter, which is breasts, of course, I got mastitis. Twice. And so I'm like, well, ne- no, I should never work on the menopause chapter. Clearly. Uh, because, you know, that chapter is actually all about death. And I don't want to die. So amazingly, the uh, I-, I didn't die. Of course, I'm an atheist. I'm not that superstitious. But uh, I did have a little thing in the back of my head like, oh, shit,
2: maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Oh, at least one of the things that I really love about your book, because I mean, obviously, it's it's full of just amazing science. But I think the fact that you Bring so much of yourself to the story as well. I think really um, makes it a really even more engaging read, actually. So, so uh, you know, I I I enjoyed reading about following you over your ten year, your your lifetime, uh, womanly adventures. You know, your Eve like adventures um, that paralleled the Eves in the book. Um, And one of the other things that I really loved about your book was just there were some great um, theories that were often by men explaining things, you know, that was very fun to sort of, you know, have a pop at and, and, and menstruation's one of those, isn't there, that there's been a whole bunch of, of, of theories that are just, you know, in, in now in retrospect, in hindsight, you know, there's some, you know, so do, do you, are any do you remember any that particularly make you chuckle that were completely sort of ridiculous?
1: Oh God, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the most obvious ones that I was just like, really, 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 Yale University Press, really? So there was this one book that came out that essentially proposed that women, uh, well, they said women, people with a uterus, but women sink their menstrual cycles so that men will not be so distracted by having sex with us and then therefore go out and hunt and build pyramids and shit. You know, that literally this is the main thesis of the book, that because somehow we menstruate and therefore apparently don't have sex, uh, hence human culture. Yeah, just just that. That's the thesis of the book and published by a reputable place. And I'm like, oh, my God. Now, I mean, for one thing, as a person um, with a menstruating uterus, I can certainly tell you that's not a hard stop for sexuality, okay? Let's just put that out there. And as, and I don't just mean for, for me being a promiscuous person. I mean, I've often been solicited when I am literally holding tampons in a grocery store, okay? So like, And it's not because I'm that hot. It's just that it's not actually that much of a problem for me or the guys, apparently, okay? Now, whether or not you're in the mood is a separate issue because mood and sexuality is complex. But like, whether or not this is a hard signal in the biological sense that now is not the time for the sexing, apparently not a problem for us, okay? Both anecdotally and otherwise. The other central problem with it is that we may not actually sink our periods. Just like that's that may actually be a freaking wives' tale um, or maybe a gentleman's tale, actually. They seem to talk about it more than we do. Um, but no, in studies of hunter-gatherer societies where you're not getting artificial light, you're not getting a lot of the signals that people worry about that may be an influence, Right they're not sinking their periods. That's not a thing. That's not a predictable number. Um, And so while it may be true that um, some women in closed environments in uh, whatever you want to call the West sometimes do that, it's probably observer bias. It may be that we're expecting to do it. And so then if it happens, aha, then it happened. And the other thing, of course, is that um, a lot of uh, people with a uterus and ovaries in uh, many parts of the world are currently on hormonal birth control. And we just tend to start it on a Monday towards the beginning of the month. So we're just literally artificially making that happen nowadays. Um, Again, not tied to our evolution much at all.
2: Um, Yeah. It's just just so, so, so enjoyable to look at these, uh, these theories. I think that's the kind of thing that I, I really enjoy. Um, But, uh, and man, the hunter, you know, he's, He's been the, he's been this this hero of, of our uh, of our kind of our evolution really responsible for so many things you know and uh, and one of those of course is was allegedly bipedalism you know we have we have man the hunter to thank for that um, but you
1: have a different way of looking at that too do you want to tell mm-hmm. me about that well sure I mean um, as you've probably done yourself in your studies in zoology you know one of the best places to look best places to look is extant species that are related to us. Yeah. So what does bipedalism behavior look like in other primates? Not because they are fully bipedal, but what are the occasions in which they might literally rise to the occasion? Yeah. Uh, and very few of those have to do with food sourcing, but one of them actually does, which I found really interesting. One of the more reliable ways that you'll see a chimpanzee or a bonobo or or any of other our other close cousins Uh, Stand up on two legs and kind of scurry away with something in their hands is when they get prized food and they're wanting to go and um, eat it in private, as it were, Uh, or at least not have it stolen or be obliged somehow to share by more dominant others. Right. So that's an occasion where that happens. Um, Another occasion it happens is when males want to do sexual displays and chimpanzees. There are a lot of videos of this online so you can, you know, have fun, folks. He tends to stand up on two legs. He's got his little erection, which is little. The chimp penis, not very large. You know, but he's waving it around. He's usually got some big branch and he's beating it on stuff. And actually, in these videos, you could always see all the females look so nonplussed. They look so not into it in any given moment. They're like, oh, God, I guess this is happening. But yes, yeah, so that's the other way. So there have been some theories for human bipedalism, uh, hominin rather, the deep origins of it, unlike hunting. That would say, okay, maybe we became upright maybe for sexual displays. This seems unlikely. Or maybe we did it for prized food. Now, if it's the prized food, that's interesting to me only because, um, well, who has the most need for food? Uh, of course, it's not simply the larger-bodied animals, but the ones who are actively nursing and caretaking. And in nearly all of the great apes, the females are the primary caretaker. There's some allo-parenting, sure. There's some shared labor there. But primarily, the mother is is doing the job to feed herself and to feed her offspring for a good long time. And for me, I'm always like, well, who has the greatest need? You know, the other thing about bipedalism, of course, it's expanding range. And that's often been a story, not only in hunting, but it's like, OK, do you need to go farther to get food? Is that a thing? What's the most efficient way for you to do that that could also be safe? So that's also a bipedalism argument. And again, if you have the greatest need for food and you need to increase your range, and uh, and you need to secure pretend, potentially prized food away from threatening others. That sounds to me like more of a female story. I assume both members of the species, I assume both sexes obviously became bipedal. It's just that there's a strong female driver there in my mind.
0: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared.
2: And, you know, females might also be carrying an offspring at the same time. Quite literally. So if you want (laughs) to gather food and you're carrying a baby, then, you know, you know, you you can't be walking on all fours anymore, you know. so
1: Precisely. Precisely. And we don't know exactly when we lost our usefully handy body fur, because, of course, in other great apes, uh, the newborns, at the very least, are very good at gripping on. You know, and our newborns still are. You can actually hang a newborn by a freaking pole. You can find videos of this. It's instinctive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll just hang there. Just just swinging. Just swinging. Um, because that grip instinct, the palmar reflex that you, if you press the center of a newborn's palm, it will grip like hell. It can't do much else. It can't hold up its own head, but it will grip. So that's probably an old primate thing that they used to grip on to mama's fur. Yeah. But the thing is is that like we don't know when we lost our first so we don't know exactly when we had to carry our stupid babies or when they could actually just hang on while we were mobile but bipedalism does um put a bit of pressure on the system at the very least it's farther to fall yeah,
2: it's definitely farther to fall that's for sure um and uh you know another another of the the gynecological I'll start that again another of the gynecological innovations that you talk about in your book um uh, which yeah, I, th- I thought was really interesting, was, was the uh, the evolution of, of reproductive choice, albeit unconscious choice. So should we have a little chat about that? I, I talked about it a bit in Bitch, but you go into it much more, and I, I really enjoyed what you had to
1: say. And the Bruce effect, do you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um... There is this uh, weird myth that we like to tell about human behavior in general, which is to say we're also special, and everything we do is just something that nobody else in the entire animal kingdom does. And look at us and woohoo, right? Um, but this also has a kind of uh, perverse and negative effect in that we think uh, exercising our reproductive choice as human beings is somehow novel, is somehow something that just arrives in us, and we often even tell the story that it's something we've only recently started doing, and. Uh, no, let's just say no. Let's just just put a stop on that and say that's just not how evolution works. And that's not the animals we are. So the Bruce effect is really interesting. Um, it it seems that uh, abortion, again, remember that uh, for your readers, um, listeners, rather, abortion is a word that we in- use to describe when a woman chooses to end a pregnancy. And then we've invented this other term called miscarriage to kind of soften the blow. I'm not much into the word miscarriage, not only because it simply doesn't exist in the medical literature, but also because that's called spontaneous abortion. Actually, that's the technical term. Um, But also because it implies somehow we did something wrong, like we dropped the baby or something, we miscarried it, and it's literally not the fault of the pregnant person. So I'm just not down with that word at all. The technical term is spontaneous abortion, and this is uh, present in every mammal, I would say. Yeah, I think that's a safe safe statement. What's interesting is also how common it, commonly it happens in response to perceived social change and perceived social threat. That's the really interesting thing. So the Bruce effect, right. If you put an unknown male into an enclosure with pregnant female rodents, this is true in mice and rat, uh, she will abort. She will just abort. Uh, fairly reliably up to a certain point in her pregnancy, she is going to miscarry. And you can actually produce this effect just by putting his, like, the scent of his pee in her enclosure. She doesn't even have to see the guy, just the smell of his foreign urine, urine and she's like, well, I'm out, right? And why does she do that? What is that? Is it simple stress? Well, not exactly, It because you can stress a mouse and not have her miscarry. It's specifically this kind of social stress that has this really reliable effect. And what's going on is that there's a lot of infanticide in these species. Uh, A new male will be very likely to kill your pups uh, not long after they come out of your body. And that will send you into a reproductive cycle sooner because you're not lactating at that moment. And so it's actually a reproductive advantage for him to kill your pups. And it's therefore a reproductive advantage for you to drop the pregnancy and just have a go with the new guy if it's something you want. Right, because you're literally wasting resources. I mean, in the biological sense, in the rat sense, we're talking about rats here, people. Okay, but what's interesting is it's not just rats. This is also present in domestic horses. This is also present in geladas, which are higher primates. This is present in many, many, many different mammalian species, which is to say some version of the Bruce effect, which in the book I broaden to say, okay, call it social abortion, maybe. It's spontaneous abortion, but in response to perceived social change and social threat it is deeply common to mammals, which I think changes how we understand what we do. They're not choosing to do what they do. OK, that's that's um, consciousness is is best left to philosophers, I think, and also simply not present in a mouse. Right. But but that we do what we do, that we would choose to end a pregnancy for various re- reasons, usually in response to a social environment usually in response to an imagination of the future of oneself as a mother or the future of that child in a social environment, is is deeply mammalian and deeply common in that sense. It's just the way we do it is new.
2: Yeah. And I I thought it was really interesting as well, because you you sort of speculated as well as to whether, you know, because there are all these examples of of primates self-medicating, you know, with different plants and stuff. And so I thought that was really interesting as well, that you'd pull together some ideas about how maybe that might be actually, uh, you know, some, something that's, that's forced upon the body
1: by, by, by intaking, ingesting other things. hmm There are a lot of ways to influence your reproductive cycle, uh, and there is some flexibility there. For example, when uh, chimpanzee females, they leave the troop to go join another troop when they hit some point of adolescence kind of a thing that they do. The females are the ones who migrate, yeah, to join other social groups, as you know. So um, what's interesting there is depending on when she leaves, uh, it might influence um, how soon she's able to become reproductively viable, which is to say there's some flexibility in your on- your onset of your re- uh, adult reproductive life that's already just built into our female reproductive system. So there's a a lot of ways that you can manipulate it socially and otherwise. But when it comes to uh, drugs, which, of course, uh, for other animals would be plants, pretty much plants, right? There's all kinds of evidence for the pharmacopoeia coming on board. Usually it's for intestinal parasites. We have a lot of data about manipulating intestinal parasites in chimps and other primates. Um, Sometimes it's because of the roughness of the leaves that they choose to eat. Sometimes it's actual bitter pith, which is known to negatively impact uh, a parasite's life cycle that you can see chimps with the infection actually selectively eating, you know, and they avoid the stuff otherwise because it doesn't taste good because it's bitter. Is that choice? Is that actual medicine? That's ah, okay. Let's leave the brain out of it a little bit. Let's say the effect is there and the behavior is strongly tied to strong correlations. Okay. So like you, I think I, I always want to think about human behavior as coming from somewhere. It doesn't always, but it's like, we are evolved beasts, you know. We, we don't invent much whole cloth, you know. Um, and so if there is pharmacopoeia involved, if there is selective plant eating involved in other primates, why do we think that when we arrive at hominins and human beings, this arrives out of nowhere? That we might do something to affect our fertility cycle by using plants so brilliantly like no one had ever done that before? It seems to me more of a continuation of behavior. Um, that we're finding more and more evidence for in other primates.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a it's a fascinating take. And the other the other thing that I, I really enjoyed was your take on on the menopause, because of course you know there's there is a point in human females where we stop making babies, you know, which is unusual. Uh, and um, and I really enjoyed. How your take on on why on why you think that that is, you know, it's something that's been speculated for a long time. But um but I, I wasn't familiar with what you wrote in the book.
1: Yeah. So um as you say, it's a big mystery. Why the hell do we stop making babies? You know, from many biologists point of view well, many male biologists' point of view. Uh, I'm just putting that out there, you know, as (laughs) someone who doesn't have to go through this shit. You know, that that why on earth, you know, given that you want to pass on your genes, want with big scare quotes around that, uh, why would you ever stop and then just keep on living? That seems a bit superfluous, like excess. Why old age is the real question. And that's the big thing that we often mess up about menopause, first of all. We think it's about the moment our ovaries shut down, but it's actually always a longevity question, right? Because what's distinctive about menopause isn't simply that the ovaries shut down, but that we keep living, that we're not dead. That's the whole point, ladies. Congratulations. You're not dead yet. That's menopause, right? Now that a full third of our lives might live on after our ovaries are like, ah, yeah, never mind. So this is um, in part Susan Albert's work. She's a wonderful primatologist. She did a comparative analysis of, um, of longevity and primate ovarian senescence. And it does seem distinct to the human being that we have such a long post-reproductive life. When we tend to die and when we tend to have our last baby, that is distinct to human beings. But the general rate of senescence for primates seems relatively common, which is to say, maybe it's not the case that we selected to have menopause, but rather somewhere in our ancestral line, a number of different mutations happened that effectively selected for longevity. And then menopause was revealed, right? If our ovaries didn't get the message, if they're still running the old monkey plan, as it were, which happens in many places in the body, by the way, many parts of our bodies are running more or less recent features, right? If our ovaries didn't get the message, then they're still dying off. They're still senescing. They're still aging at that standard primate rate. But somehow the rest of us just keeps on going, just keeps on going. Which uh, in large part is a matter of delaying the onset of aging because, of course, a 60-year-old human woman is, um, she's doing relatively fine. Her back might hurt, her knees, you know, there are problems, okay? But a 60-year-old chip is falling the hell apart. Her teeth are falling out. She's got patches of bald fur. She's just, she's not doing well. Now, interestingly, she's among the sexiest member of the group. Like, male chimps are really into grannies, okay? They're really into the older ladies uh in human beings well it's mixed depends what you feel about pornography there's evidence either way but like it's it's we pushed off aging somehow you know what i mean and that means that we um revealed our uh, menopause and in revealing that menopause maybe there were add on features that were useful but longevity's the real story so this is a, i'm i'm going around and around in circles i should answer your direct question i think the reason that we have menopause is because it is useful to have older members of social groups. Precisely because they are able to remember uh, stressful conditions and workarounds to those stressors that literally younger members can't remember because they weren't alive. And that's something that you see in transient orca. Yeah, they're not helping take care of the grandbabies all that much. They're taking care of their sons because the sons stay with the moms their whole lives. Every single transient orca is a mama's boy. And that's interesting and kind of fun to think about. But no, what the older menopausal orca are really doing is leading the pod to better sources of food in times of crisis. And they also seem to be particularly involved in teaching younger members of the group how to do special hunting moves. Like like that thing where, you know, you they line up like linebackers in a row and then bum rush and ice flow so that the bow wake of that huge crashing force goes over the top of the ice and knocks a seal off and then they all get lunch bad for the seal good for the orca they're involved in teaching them how to do that too but they're not they're not the free childcare, which is how we often talk about menopause in human beings
2: yeah i mean obviously that's you know that you know yeah the orcas are the wise old lady whales that 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 keep their their hunting culture alive by passing it down from generation to generation and they you know. They do live an extraordinary long time as well. It's like freaky. They, you know, Granny who was leading the transient um, J pod. She was thought to be p- potentially a hundred, over a hundred, when she died. You know, so it, it is like there's this. They're they're living a freakishly long time. So, you know, and but of course, as you say in the book, that it's always the females that live longer. So the kind of the travesty of menopause is that. It's it's about saying goodbye to males, but there is a way to keep males living longer, isn't there? And that's to cut off their balls.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the UK listeners may not be aware of what I did on the Daily Show. Hopefully, they'll make it available in the UK at some point. No, there is uh there is one central and obvious reason that people with testicles should read my book. Uh, besides, if they like to laugh and and they like to know things about this other half of the species for people who don't have testicles. Well, the central reason, of course, is that um we know that female bodies are better at not dying just generally just just sort of across the board across many mammalian species you get that female longevity boost uh and what a longevity boost is of course is that every year more and more males are dropping like flies and the females keep on living because they're resisting the main things that well cause us to age and die okay now there is one intervention however that is among the most reliable single intervention you can do in a male mammal to make him live longer and that is castrate him just just cut off his balls now that is true in rodents that is true in dogs actually maybe some of your listeners have done that you know if you've castrated your pet that adds an average of a year and a half to a domestic dog's life but this is also true in wild boars this is also true in many primates and humans we have the data now it's all historical thank god but in human beings uh, in the um Korean imperial court, they had a tradition of eunuchs and kept very good medical records. Thank you, Korea. In uh, the American condition, in the mid-century American men uh, who had mental illness, who were institutionalized and who were also, unfortunately, because the history of eugenics is horrific, let's please never do that again, they were also castrated. Very good medical records. And there were some Central Asian traditions. In every case, the castrated males are living longer, relatively healthier lives than their regularly bald peers. Now, Italian castrati, the data are mixed, okay? Now, they were a smaller population size. They had varied lives in the end. That may just tell you something about opera. But for the most part, for the most part, castrated human beings um, are living longer, healthier lives. They're Hearts tend to have uh, less signs of aging, their peripheral vascular response. And there's a cancer effect, too. There's just a lot that's good about not having balls, as it turns out. Right. And the thing is, why is that? Right. Why are so many men smuggling too little death nuggets? Like, why are these the ping pongs of destiny? Why are these the actual grapes of wrath? The answer is we don't know. We don't know yet because we need to have been better studying the biology of sex differences for the last half century. But we're finally catching up. We're working on it. But this is the actual future of gerontology, people. Not that your doctor's going to come and say it's time to cut off your balls, right? But rather that once we find out why there's this male vulnerability, why are testicles so dangerous? Why is it that this is such a strong effect? When we figure that out, we're actually going to be unlocking the basic mechanisms of aging. We're talking about the gearworks of what it is to be alive, all the way down to how cellular repair works. This is actually how we're going to improve medicine for aging men. And because, you know, I think, I think it's absolutely true that um, British men deserve better from the NHS uh, than a mass castration plan.
2: We could do it better by you, gentlemen. We can. It's funny. It's it's not something I've heard on one of those wellness bro pod podcasts. Um, there's, there's always like talk about adding extra testosterone to your diet and all these things, but nobody's actually suggested
1: castration. But um, you know, but don't try this at home. I mean, yeah. maybe, but no, yeah. don't. You know, <laughs> um, but no, it's true. Unfortunately, it's a very common treatment for people who have testicular cancer and prostate cancer at a certain advanced rate um but by then because of the confounds of cancer it's not nearly as effective unfortunately in other mammals it seems most effective to do it before puberty but again i'm not advocating that we necessarily do this just that we figure out why
2: yeah and i think what's interesting is just to sort of you know is it probably is a, a a final thought on this is that um you know that that's really kind of you know if we're sort of finishing with a plea for for, for how to to help men live longer but really the whole book the whole point of your book the reason why you've, you've written this book about sex differences is as a is a plea for studying females medically really isn't it because we just haven't been and that is a devastating
1: thing for human females isn't it that is the fundamental moral imperative you know that we've so radically understudied sex differences Um, that it affects so many different features of our lives, from the drugs that we take to the medical treatment we receive to even how seriously our pain is taken in a clinic. It is sexism, yes, but it's not only sexism. It's a knowledge gap. And I would also just offer, there's a danger in wanting a thing to be true. We have made some gains. We have made some advances in better including females in studies. We are finally starting to make progress here. And we're starting to really get a picture of what it means to even be intersex. It's a very nascent science around that stuff, but we're starting to we're starting to change the story of how, what it is that we are, and and how sex plays into that. But the thing is, is that these are incremental, small gains, and there are enough loopholes in the system to drive entire trucks through. And those trucks are loaded with things like opioid drugs. Okay, so it's not simply. A, enough to say, oh, we've made some gains, now we can relax. You know what I mean? Because um, that rarely goes well in social progress, but it also rarely goes well in major paradigm shifts. And that's what this is in biology. This is a paradigm shift in how we're studying model species. And that can be a very stuttery process. That can have lots of loops and eddies and fallbacks. If we don't keep our foot on the pedal and take this seriously, we're not going to get where we need to go.
2: Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, everybody suffers by not understanding the differences between between you know males and females when it comes to to to, to medical treatment. Basically, you know, we we've had you know you you've got some shocking examples uh, in there of of just how vital it is to understand that female bodies need drugs
1: in different doses to the way that uh, male, males do. Yeah, your liver doesn't have a pronoun, but it does have a sex. Okay, Uh, your hepatocytes, your main liver cells are differently expressing thousands of genes on the daily simply because its owner is male or female, whether or not it has a functioning SRY gene on that Y chromosome. You know, that's changing your liver functionality. And a hell of a lot of drugs are metabolized through the liver opioids, for example. Um, So this is a common class of drug that is a pain relief. It's also highly addictive, unfortunately. Um, But there are many, many, many on the market. Oxycontin is one of them. So female patients tend to need a little bit more to achieve the same level of subjective pain relief. Not because of mass differences, not because our bodies are smaller, but probably because our livers are functioning differently and then the tissues in which this uh, drug is affecting Uh, The nervous system is also responding a little bit differently. So you need a little bit more of it. And then the uh, slope at which it leaves your body, again, looks a little bit different than a male patient. And that would be a very important thing to understand with something which is addictive. Because while it's true that in the United States, for example, more men are addicted to opioid drugs than women, um, there's a huge boost after menopause when there's a lot of uh, menopausal-related and old-age-related pain when far more older female patients who may never have had any addictive profile suddenly become addicts, okay? And it's not because they look like what a so-called typical drug addict might look like. It's because they're being prescribed opioid drugs and not given sufficient guidance as to, if this doesn't feel okay yet, please don't up your dose without talking to me. Please don't start seeking more or start taking it more often than I've prescribed without talking to me, me being the Actual MD, not me. I have a PhD, not an MD. Right. Okay. So so that what that means is that women can be uniquely vulnerable to certain kinds of addiction patterns for opioid drugs just because they were trying to get relief for pain. If we had known more about liver differences, if we had known more about this sort of thing in clinical trials, that wouldn't be the case. Imagine how much suffering could have been reduced if we simply had properly tested this stuff over the last 50 years. So we're catching up. We're finally getting on board, but it takes a while. It takes at least ten years for a clinical trial to get a thing onto market, and most of them never do, right? So again, if we keep the conversation going, we keep the foot on the pedal. We're going to get there, but we should not ignore all the suffering that's happened because of our neglect so far.
2: Uh, absolutely, and and I and I um you know I I really hope that um, Eve you know, is, is part of that campaign to, to right that wrong so that, um, you know, males can hold on to their balls and, and live as long. <laughs> like they're just furry and, little uh, friends. And females don't know, need to wake well up. Keep them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, males can hold on to their balls and, and, and live as long as females. And, and females don't have to, to wake up on operating tables and, uh, you know, all the other all the other strange things that happen from not considering sex differences when it comes to medicine. Absolutely. So Kat, it's a fantastic book. And there are many, 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 many reasons to read it and many ways that after reading it, the world looks like a different place. But it's been fantastic to speak to you. And uh, thank you, Intelligence Squared, for giving me the opportunity to connect with you again. Always
1: a joy. And thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.